Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray now that as we go through the remainder of our service and we look into your word that you would open it up for us, that you would touch our hearts with the truth that is there. And may we leave this place different than we were when we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? Um, Today what I'm doing out may have been a little bit of confusion. Next week we're going to start a new series in the book of Judges. We finished the Joshua. I just wanted to go through Judges to maybe seven or eight sermons, maybe not a lot, just out of Judges. But today I wanted to do something a little different and winding up this other series in Joshua. We're going to be talking on the subject of blind faith. We studied these great examples of faith as we looked into Joshua. And sometimes we get confused over this, and I just want to touch on this today. How many of you saw uh, last week the game, the championship game of college football between Alabama and Clemson? How many of you watched that? How many of you were happy with the outcome? Yeah, I think all of us were. I was jumping up and down. I stayed up to 1 o'clock listening to all the interviews. And one of the things that caught my attention was Dabo Sweeney is the coach of Clemson, and he is a strong Christian. And he, he stood up there with the newscasters, and it was all excited, just giving glory to God and talking about his faith and, and uh, his perspective on life and a lot of different things. And even after that, I think the next day they were doing interviews with him. And then, sure enough, just about, you know, you could just about count on it, all of a sudden people began to criticize him about his faith and about his um, not being, you know, the wisdom of sharing that publicly and, and so forth, of usual things. Uh, the problem is this, that many people today see faith as a sign of weakness. You can see it in the college classrooms. You can see it on the job. You can see it in the media. Anybody that has faith, especially Christian faith, is seen as having a crutch. Um, we hold on to these archaic beliefs, we're told, that have been outdated and proven to be uh, false and in view of the overwhelming evidence we're told that um, they just don't exist. We're told that we're weak and we can't cope with life, therefore we have to build this mystical, magical place called heaven in order to believe in to give us hope. Unlike now the unbelievers who are also unable to cope with life, but they turn to drugs, alcohol, materialism, and sex. But nonetheless, we are the ones that are told that we are weak and need a crutch. And we are also accused in the end of having what is known or what is referred to as blind faith. Now, maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've been accused of that. Let me kind of explain what that means. Blind faith, as it is referred to in the way it is used, is talking about what you believe and the the fact that it is uninformed and, and baseless. There's no basis for believing the Bible or that there's a God. To believe that, you have to ignore science and history. You're believing in a fantasy. It's not reasonable. There's no reason for believing it. It just doesn't make sense. And you are blind to reality and even the truth. That's basically what they mean when they say that we as Christians have blind faith. There's no basis for believing it. Now, if you turn and look in some time and read through Hebrews 11, there is a list of people men and women who are great people of faith throughout the history. And we are told there that they lived their lives and they died in faith. Some of them never 
realizing or experiencing the things that God had promised that was yet to come. And many of them died with their faith, still intact, still believing. And many of them died for their faith because they believed what they did. They were killed or martyred or sewn up or sewn in half or fed to animals or whatever, beheaded. And the list goes on of all the things that happened to them there. But yet they held on. We've just come through a study in the book of Joshua. And we have seen how that these men and women, especially the the soldiers that went out with Joshua, they came up to the Jordan River and they crossed over the Jordan and they fought battle after battle after battle and were victorious. And you've got to stop and ask yourself, why did they ever cross the Jordan River? Why did they ever go into this land to fight an enemy that was way stronger than they were? But yet they did it. Why did they do it? Because God told them so. Because God had told them to do it. And looking at past experiences of what they knew to be true of of God, he had proven himself to be mighty on their behalf time and time again. So they put their faith in what they knew to be true, and they stepped out in faith, and it wasn't a blind faith. It wasn't just Joshua and the soldiers saying, hey, let's go take these people. We, we think we can take them. They were basing it on something that they had been told by God, and God had proven himself to be true. Therefore, they very reasonably put their faith in God, and they moved ahead. You see, none of these people that I have talked about here or mentioned have blind faith. It's always based on something. There's something that has happened or something that they've read, something that they've been told that leads them to believe what they believe. Now, the unbeliever, on the other hand, and you've got to understand this, and if you ever uh, need ammunition, so to speak, or answers for people that might question your faith, and you want to listen to this today, okay? The unbeliever, on the other hand, does have blind faith. He does. You see, everybody has faith in something. It's just a matter of determining what their faith is in and why it is they believe it. But everybody believes something. I have dealt with people over years of ministry, either in my office or in prison or just out talking to somebody, whatever the case may be. But I begin to ask them questions as we're talking together and, you know, and just discovering who they are and what they believe. And I'll ask things like, well, do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe in heaven or hell? Do you believe in life after death? I mean, what, what do you believe? And they'll begin to tell me that, no, I don't believe any of those things. And people who believe those things are just grabbing hold to fantasy and their faith is blind. And so I say, well, what do you believe? And I've gotten various answers to all of these questions that I've asked. But here are some of the more common ones, okay? And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been there. Well, they'll say to me, well, I believe in the cosmos or the universe. And I believe that when we die, we're just going to return to the universe. I'm not sure what that means. I'm, I guess it means something to them, but that's what they'll say. Some of have said, well, I believe in reincarnation. I believe that when you die, you come back as something or somebody, um, usually somebody famous, but that's what they believe. They believe in reincarnation. Some people believe that there's nothing after death. When I die, it's all over, they'll say, and I don't believe in anything that uh, hints of a life after death. Some, especially those from certain cults 
certain backgrounds will say that we become gods. I believe that we just become godlike and live for eternity in that state. Others believe that everyone gets to heaven. They'll tell you that everybody's going to get there, whether it be the Muslim or the Buddhist or whomever it may be. They're just trying to get there a different way than us, and their way is just as acceptable and, and right as ours. And we're all going to get there someday. And I've even had a time or two somebody to say, I believe that we all came as a, a uh, extraterrestrial landed on Earth and we started this group and we're all going to return to the home planet someday. There's been all kinds of bizarre answers. But what I always try to do is ask this one question. Okay, I understand what you're saying, but tell me this. Why do you believe that? What are you basing that on? Who told you that? What evidence do you have to believe that other than just picking it out of the air? And they'll tell me, that, well, that's just what I believe. I don't really have any evidence for it, but as I've thought about it, as I've searched for answers, this is kind of what I have come to the conclusion, and this is what I'm living with, is this, this philosophy. And I'll say to them, well, you're putting an awful lot of faith into that, aren't you? You're, you're risking your internal destiny on this truth that you've bought into or believed. And so, you know, you could say that you are trusting in that for your future, just as much as I am, my future. And they'll conclude, well, well, yeah, I guess I am. Then I'll say this. I'll say, so of the two of us, between the two of us, which of us do you really believe is exercising blind faith? Which of us do you think has more basis for believing what they believe? Which of us has more evidence to believe what they believe? And then about that time, they'll get mad at me. And they'll say things, well, it's my truth, it's my reality, it's what I believe, it's my faith. And you have no right to question that because my beliefs are just as valid as yours. I'll say, hey, I, I understand that. And I'm not trying to put you down. I'm just trying to make you think because you're telling me that you believe something very strongly, actually. But you don't have any reason to believe it other than the fact that you just gravitated to this particular belief and bought into it. And they'll usually end the conversation about that time. But, but that's basically the bottom line. You see, my truth is my truth. And what I believe is just as valid as what you believe. That's what we hear all the time. And in reality, what they're saying is it's okay for everybody to believe what they want because in the end, it's all going to come together. And nothing could be farther from the truth. But you see, they don't care about truth. Every human being that has ever lived on this earth has struggled with this question. What in the world is reality? What is true? What is really truth if you're going to talk about it? Is it any of these things that I've mentioned? Is it any of these beliefs, these philosophies, these way of, of life? Is it any of these things? This struggle to find truth has always existed. There's a part of the life of Christ when Jesus is sitting there before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is trying to determine what is the crime this man has committed. He's asking him questions and he asks Jesus a few things. And, he, and Jesus comes back with this response. He said, I came into the world to testify to the truth. And then the next verse is recorded for us there in John. It says that Pontius Pilate thought for a moment. Well, he doesn't say that. I'm inferring that he just thought for a moment. And then he asks this cynical question. 
And the question is this. What is truth? What is truth, he asks Jesus. And then he walks off. And, you know, it's a great question. Because what he was basically saying is, who's right? You're telling me you're right. Everybody else says they're right. Here's what I believe, basically, Pontius Pilate's saying. I believe in the power of Rome. That's my stability. That's my faith. I place my faith in the, in the mighty uh, kingdom of Rome. But outside of that, I don't believe anything else. Which is really kind of interesting because all through his ministry, Jesus dealt with this question. What is really true? He makes this statement in John chapter 8, verse 32. Listen to it. He said this. He said, then, he's talking and preaching to people. He said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, real quickly, I just want to share with you three things in that verse, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on them because I've got some ground to cover here. But three things that are true of that verse. Now, look at the verse. Here are the three things that I draw out of there. Number one. That verse tells you that there is indeed absolute truth. In other words, something is true when everything else is false. There is a truth. Because in this verse he says, you will know the truth. Not truth in general, not a truth. He said, not somebody else's. He said, you're going to know what absolute truth is if you'll follow me. So it can be known. Everybody usually does what's right in their own eyes. They don't seek to know what is, okay, is there something really true out there? But Jesus said, yeah, there is the truth. But here's the second thing that he says, and that is this, that this truth is knowable. You can know what it is. He says, you shall know the truth. You're going to know what it is. He's basically saying that God isn't hiding it from you. I came to reveal it to you. We've given you the Word of God in writing so that you will know it. God wants you to know it. He's not trying to hide it. And that's important. Because too many people have already concluded that you can't really know what is really true. So we are all left in this guessing game of trying to figure out what is real and what isn't. In John 14, 6, Jesus made this statement. He said, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, he didn't mince words. He said, basically, I'm it. He said, you want to know what absolute truth is? He said, I'm it. I'm here to tell you who God is. And it's going to be written and recorded in the Scripture so that generations that follow will always know what is absolute truth. And that is so important that you understand that. So first of all, absolute truth exists, and you can know what it is. Here's the third thing that is true out of this passage of Scripture, and that is this. That the truth is beneficial to us. He says the truth, he said you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay. There is absolute truth, and I can know what it is, and once I know what it is, it's going to set me free. Well, free from what? Well, you can just about plug anything into that. Let me give you some examples. I know the truth, the way that God portrays it, what is absolutely true. I'm free from ignorance. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from shame. I'm free from sin or the penalty of it and I'm free from fear 
And the list goes on and on and on. Then when I know what is really true, then I can move out in life and face the things that life has for me and face life boldly and courageously because you know what? I know what the truth is. And we look back at these men and women that we've just talked about in the book of Joshua and we see people, they were convinced of what was true and what wasn't. They knew that. And it was because of their understanding of what the truth was, their faith was built on a solid rock. Their faith was built on what God had said, and they believed it because it had proved, he had proven to them and given them evidence for believing it. See, the Christian faith is not blind. And guys, as Christians, you and I have got to understand this and to be able to stand up, not only to live it, but also to defend it. Because you and I have to be convinced as Christians, that what we believe can stand the test, any test that is thrown its way, what we believe can stand up against it. And we've been convinced over the years that because of the skeptics and the unbelievers that have told us and convinced them, some of us, even as Christians, that what we believe for the most part is just a leap of faith into the dark and has no basis. And until you're convinced otherwise, you'll probably live in ignorance, guilt, shame, fear, and so on, because you don't understand any difference. But when you understand that your faith is not blind and that your faith in what God has said and what God is and who he said he is and what he said he has done for you, your faith in that can give you strength to face anything in life, even if it means crossing the Jordan and fighting giants and enemies that are bigger than you, or crossing through the Red Sea, or doing all the things that we see in the Old Testament that these men and women have done, you and I can stand up against anything if we are convinced that our faith isn't blind, that it is built on a solid rock, and we can have confidence in what we believe. And there's a lot of Christians, you know, I hate to even admit this, but there are a lot of Christians whose faith is very shaky. Because of that, because they are listening to the unbelievers. They are listening to the charges leveled against them. And you and I have got to stand up and believe what is right. There is no such thing, listen to this, there is no such thing as blind faith for the Christian. If your faith is blind, it is not saving faith. Now understand what I'm saying here, okay? My faith in Jesus Christ is based upon what the Bible tells me to be true. I have been convinced that the Bible is real, that it is true, and I have chosen to believe what is there because of the evidence that is there. My faith is not blind. My faith is very grounded in reality. If you don't have that faith, understanding that it is real, that it is grounded in the Word of God, if all you have is hope, or you think so, or you might then you better question that because that's not what the Bible calls faith. So why is our faith not blind? Why is it that we as Christians can stand up here like I'm doing and say, my faith isn't blind. It has a basis. It has a reason. It, it, it makes sense. Well, how can we do that? Because it is based right here in what this book contains. 
Our faith isn't blind because of this. It is grounded in this. Everything that we believe comes out of this. Otherwise, it's just fantasy, it's fairy tale. We make it up. We just believe whatever we want to like everyone else. But because we understand that the Bible is the Word of God, we believe it, we accept it, and we have a basis for what we believe to be true. We have an answer. And a very reasonable answer. The foundation that we believe is indeed absolute truth. Now, here again, the skeptic, the unbeliever, is going to say to you and me, then why do you believe the Bible? What proof do you have that the Bible is the Word of God? Because you're telling me that it's the Word of God, but how can you prove it? Have any of you ever been asked that question? How can you prove that the Bible is the Word of God? Anybody? Yeah. If you haven't, then those particular words, but in a roundabout way, somebody has leveled that charge at you. How can you prove it? Let me just say this, and listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, okay? No one can prove that the Bible is the Word of God. You need to know that. Nobody can prove it beyond any doubt for anybody else that the Bible is the Word of God. But neither can you disprove it either. Now let me explain. Whenever somebody asks Christians, why do you believe that this is true when it's filled with so many fantasies and so many lies? Basically what they're asking or expecting you to do is this. They're expecting you to support and, 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 and give proof in a scientific way that the Bible is actually the Word of God. And you can't do that. You can't take science and prove Scripture. Because science, by its very nature, has to be in a laboratory, has to be experimented, has to be hypothesis and proof and all of this. And you can't really go with the Scriptures from that perspective because you just can't do it. Now listen, okay, because when you get into a conversation with somebody, especially you guys going to college, you better listen to this. You can prove the Scriptures using legal proof. This is very important. I don't have to prove the Scriptures scientifically. I can't. But if you hold it up to legal proof in that methodology, then you can't help but conclude anything else. Let me explain what that is. If I were a district attorney and I was going into a court of law, and I was coming against somebody or, or trying to, to convict somebody that was accused of a crime, I would love, as a district attorney, to have video evidence of the person committing the crime, a signed confession by the person, and five or six eyewitnesses. If I had all of that, that thing is open, it is shut. I mean, it is a done deal. It's over. But in reality, when so many DAs go into court, they don't have that kind of evidence. Usually it's some circumstantial evidence, it's some things that have happened, they'll have some eyewitnesses, they'll have this and that, and they build a case on the preponderance of evidence. And the jury hears the evidence, and the jury makes a conclusion, or draws a conclusion, and makes a verdict, uh, depending on the evidence that is put before them. Now, when you approach the Scriptures... With that method in mind, then you can prove that the Bible is the Word of God. 
Because you see, the evidence that is presented is overwhelming. The evidence is so overwhelming that any reasonable person would believe it if they really understood it. Most people who level charges against the faith and the Bible and what you believe have never really sought it out, have never really searched. And that's their problem. It's easy to take pot shots of things you don't understand. So what I want to do in the next few minutes, and very quickly, let's pretend for a moment that we're in a court of law. Let me present you a legal case. I'm going to give you five exhibits. Why we believe the Scripture is the Word of God. And let me just tell you up front, okay? If you were looking at an iceberg under the ocean, you were looking today at a very, very small fraction, a very tip of a preponderance of evidence underneath. We don't have the time for that. There is so much. And when a person really gets into it and understands it, they can't help but to conclude that this is the Word of God. And then when they have concluded that, they can put their faith in it. And it is not blind, see, because they have proven to themselves that this is real. And that's what everybody has to do. You have to look at the evidence and to come to the conclusion. Very quickly now, let me share with you these five pieces of evidence, if you will. And again, just just a hint on each one of them is all I have time for. Let's take, first of all, the scientific and archaeological evidence. Now, notice I didn't say I could prove it scientifically, but I can give you reasons scientifically to believe what the Bible says. For example, up until the year 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and came and discovered America, according to the history books, up until that time, everybody in the world, the scientific minds of the day, thought the earth was flat. I I keep hearing things that people still believe that somewhere. I don't know what that means, what they're referring to. But anyway, they believe the earth was flat. If you were to look to look at some of the uh, Eastern religions and, and philosophies, they even believe the earth was flat and sat on the backs of elephants. Now, these weren't lunatics. I'm, t- I'm telling you, this was the educated people of the day. Now, the problem with that is this. If you were to say 1492 when Columbus We'll give him credit for proving the earth wasn't flat. We'll just say that. But 3,000 years earlier, the Bible told you that. The Bible said 3,000 years earlier that the earth is round, that it hangs in space on nothing. Nobody would believe that 3,000 years ago because nobody thought that you could put a round sphere in nothing and people wouldn't fall off. It's ridiculous. This is why the, the scientific minds of the day thought that it had to be flat because that's the only thing that would explain gravity. But the Bible said, no, that's not true. And the Bible content, remained there for centuries with that statement until finally it was proven that the Bible is true. One of the uh, most common medical practices of the ancient days, and even up until the 1700s here in this country, was to bleed somebody. If they are sick, then it's obviously the problem is with the blood, and you've got to get rid of the blood. That was the common belief. Somebody told me one time that if a history 
I think, records that one of the presidents, it might have been Washington, died from bleeding. I'm not sure which one it was. The Bible said in the book of Exodus and the days of Moses that no, the life of the individual is in the blood. Nobody knew that then, but God told them it was. God wrote it down for them, recorded it in Scripture. The dietary laws of the Old Testament have proven to be good, not just made-up things. The the medicines of the Old Testament, crude as they may have been in that day, the things they were told to do have been proven to be medically accurate. Quarantining sick people, nobody ever did that. But God said if a person has this particular problem, put them outside until so many days, and he gave them very specific instructions. Nobody knew that, but God did. God told Abraham to circumcise the male babies on the eighth day after they were born. Why? Well, when we began to understand, medically speaking, that the clotting elements within the blood don't reach their peak until the day, eighth day after birth. It was the God's way of preventing them from bleeding to death. In, as far as archaeology, let's say, for example... Archaeology didn't really come into its own until the early 1800s. That's when archaeology began to take off as a scientific school of thought or practice. Up until that point, you had grave robbers. If you discover something or historically, you look for jewels and gold, you just take it. If you find a mound where an old city used to be, you build a city on top of it. Nobody cared until the 1800s when archaeologists began to do their work. For centuries, centuries, people would level charges against the Bible because the Bible kept talking about civilizations that nobody had ever heard of. Nowhere recorded in any of the books were the Hittites, for example. And they would say the Bible just makes these people up until archaeology took off and began to discover all kinds of records concerning this tremendous kingdom known as the Hittites in the days of Abraham. Well, God never apologized for mentioning those people. God never apologized because he said they were there. And the skeptics for centuries said, no, it's not true. And the Bible proves itself that it's true. Now listen to me. The Bible is not a science book. never proclaims to be. But every single time that the scriptures and science touch on something, the Bible is always right. It always has proven itself to be right. We're still waiting on things that we know are true. Science, this world of science says, no, they're not. Well, I can't explain them, but I believe the Bible is real. And I believe just like in the past, when we have doubted things because we bought into science and God said, that's not right, someday this will be proven to be true. I don't understand it, but I, in faith, believe it because every single time that science and the Bible have clashed over something, The Bible so far has proven science to be wrong. And so we stand on that. You see, that's an evidence. If I'm trying to present a case in a courtroom, that's evidence. I don't, I can't, it doesn't prove that the Bible is the Word of God, but this is just the tip of the iceberg and it kind of makes you think that, wait a minute, it just might be. Well, who other than God could have done that? And so a reasonable person begins to think, There just might be something to this. Here's the second exhibit 
a line of reasoning. That is that the Bible is full of people who are there. They are eyewitnesses. If you're in a courtroom, you want this. You want eyewitnesses. John, the apostle, said this. He said, we touched him, we lived with him, we ate with him, we saw him. Talking about Jesus, we can tell you exactly who he is. And we're telling you now. We were with him for three and a half years. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, concerning the resurrection, he said there are over 500 witnesses, 500 people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And he said, he goes on to say, they're still living to this day, his day, when he wrote that, which was 20 to 30 years later. Paul says, if you don't believe me, then go ask them because they are still living. Eyewitnesses that can testify that Jesus rose from the dead. Peter said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The whole time he was here, we saw it. Over and over and over again, you have eyewitnesses that testify to who he was and of what he said is true. Here's the third exhibit, and that is the uniqueness of the Bible itself. I'm just listen, okay? Here we've got the Bible. This book was written over a period of 1,500 years, from the time of Moses until the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, this was over a span of about 1,500 years. There were 40 different writers that participated in writing the Bible as God inspired them and moved them to write. And here's what you discover, that the story never changed. It's the same theme, start to finish, redemption. Whether it be Adam and Eve in the garden or John talking about the book of Revelation, it's the same theme. Who could have done that over 1,500 years with these different Why would they have lied? This book has been translated into more languages than any other book in existence. When this book was copied, now let me explain. When it's written, it's written on skins of animals or parchment or whatever they used at that particular time what was available and it all decays so they kept having to make copies over and over to recopy it and destroying the old ones that were worn out every time history tells us that every time they recopied or made a fresh copy they dealt with it so meticulously they would count the letters on every line and then the letters on every page. And it had to be exactly the same number from the original, or else they'd destroy it and start over. See, they were very meticulous with it because they knew what it was. People often level charges against the Bible. The way that thing's been copied over and over and over and translated, no, it hasn't. It's the same. This book has been read by more people than any other book in existence. It has survived centuries of attacks and abuse. People trying to destroy it. Level uh, lies against it. This is the only book that claims to be the Word of God. Do you understand that? This is the only book that claims to be the Word of God. It is historically accurate. The life of the people in the Old Testament as it is written for us has proven to be exactly right according to other things that have surfaced in history. The people in the times of the New Testament have proven to be exactly right. The mention of people and 
and nations and kings and kingdoms. And so everything is right. Whether we understood it at the time or not, it has proven to be right. Exhibit number four, prophecy. Prophecy is probably one of the greatest selling points, I guess, for the validity of the scriptures than anything else there is. Who else could have written things hundreds and hundreds of years before they ever occurred? And I'm talking about hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Things that are just unbelievable. But when you begin to get into it and see them, the Bible is the only book in antiquity that contains prophecies. None of the others do. It has prophecies about the nation of Israel, prophecies about other nations and kingdoms, prophecies about people. Many have already occurred and come true and have proven themselves to be true. Here's one. Let me tell you this one. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah foretells about Israel, and and Jerusalem in particular, about Jerusalem being rebuilt after it's destroyed. And he foretells about how that in the day of King Cyrus of Persia, that the command will go out to rebuild Jerusalem. Now this had to do when the Israelites were taken into captivity. And so he even, you know, he says the city is going to be rebuilt and the king named Cyrus of Persia is going to give the command to go back and rebuild it. Now here's the problem. When Isaiah wrote that, Jerusalem hadn't even been destroyed yet. This was 160 years before that. When he wrote that, Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. A hundred years before Cyrus would even come to power, and here is this prophet in the Old Testament foretelling this, calling him by name a hundred years before he would ever live. Well, Shazam, you know, this just might be the Word of God. You know? You think about it. There's an awful lot of evidence, you know, that makes you think. The Messianic prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament telling you where he's going to be born, how he's going to be dealt with, things that he would say, the way in which he would die. All of these things. There's some, I think there's about 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. It's phenomenal. Here's exhibit number five. The changed lives. The martyrs. Why would somebody go and allow themselves to be fed to the lions rather than renounce him? Why would these martyrs stand in such opposition or stand against such opposition if this was a lie? Yeah, they knew it was true and their lives would never be the same. You see, those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ know that too and our lives will never be the same. Your life has changed. I can tell you from listening to testimonies from people, what you used to be, God, only God could have miraculously changed you into who you are. You know the power that is there. All of these little tidbits, and believe me, there's just a few, of reasons why we would conclude that the Bible is really true that the Bible is really the Word of God. And then we come to this point in life where we're convinced of it and we are coming to a point of putting our faith, not only in what the Bible says, but our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then somebody has the audacity 
to come up to me or to you and to say to us that your faith is blind. There's no reason for you believing what you believe. You're a fool. I want more than anything for you to be able to say, well, let me tell you why I believe it. And let me tell you why I believe that what you have is a faith that is empty and blind. And then you begin to share with them why. What are the evidences? Why do you believe what you believe? Your faith is not blind. It is grounded in truth. The truth that Jesus talked about when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We know what that is. You see, our faith grows with our understanding. It grows over time. Folks, let me tell you something. If you think that faith means that you don't have doubts about things, then that's not what faith is. Every person has always had doubts when they're confronted with inconsistencies or things they don't understand or things that they can't quite put together in their minds. You know, you, you, before I went to seminary and, and dealt with some of these questions in my own mind, you begin to have those questions pop up and think, well, what if, you know, what if I'm wrong? I think everybody at some point in their life thinks that, but then you begin to look at the evidence and you're once again reassured that this is real. This is absolute truth. And when you're convinced of that, you accept it. Your faith is built stronger. I guess I'm tired of believers who are so wishy-washy in their faith, but simply because they haven't put the time into studying. They don't know why they believe what they believe. And I want you to understand that your faith is grounded. You have a basis for believing it. And people can call it into question, but you can always give an answer. You know, God reveals him the word to us, the truth to us in two different ways. One is through discovery. You read the Bible, you read books, you search for the answers, and God reveals those things to you through your own discovery. Here's what Paul said in Romans in 10, chapter 10, verse 17. Here's what he says. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. In other words, faith comes by hearing, by reading, by studying. How are you ever going to be convinced of what the truth is if you never study the truth? So I really want to challenge you because you have to put the time into discovering it. And then the second way that we learn it is that God reveals it. God opens up your heart and your mind to understand and to receive. My challenge is very simple. That you study so that you might be convinced. Not because I told you, but because you've studied it. And you know that this is absolute truth. And once you're convinced of that, that your faith is then grounded in it, you are stable in what you believe. So that when you go to college and you hear some professor give some scientific reason why your Bible isn't true, you may not have an answer for that particular accusation, but you have already been convinced that it's true. I know what I believe because the evidence is overwhelming. And there's nothing that can ever surface that would cause me to doubt it because I'm convinced of it. Not because I want it to be, 
but because I have examined the evidence and I'm now convinced. That's where you need to be. Every one of us has to put that in, that effort into learning it so that we can stand up for it and defend it. Because believe me, there will be many people who level charges against you. Let me just put in a plug for a book. There are plenty of books on evidences and things like that. Here's one that I want you to, if you don't have it, get it, okay? It's entitled, A Ready Defense by Josh McDowell. Just write it down. Next time you're in the bookstore, pick it up. It's, uh, it's, it's laid out for you. It will give you fact after fact after fact. Read it. It's A Ready Defense by Josh McDowell. So you study. Here's the second challenge. You pray for understanding. If God reveals truth, then let's pray that God does that. If your faith is shaky and it's weak and you're wobbling over what to believe, then I want to challenge you to pray that God would give you understanding. Your faith is not blind, Christian. Don't you dare let anybody convince you otherwise. You stand up and be strong. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, let me read you this verse and then we'll close. In John 6:47, Jesus said this. He said, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. At some point in your life, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And that he went to the cross, he died, and he was resurrected as a payment for your sin. And you put your faith in him and you trust him. I want to, more than anything, share that with you and talk with you about it. If you're here and you have questions about that, there's a a yellow card in that seat back in front of you. I'd love to sit down with you and tell you more about that and explain it to you. But you can just let me know and I'll be I'll be glad to set an appointment with you, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we are overwhelmed with the reality that we as Christians are under attack. Whenever we stand up to try to defend or proclaim our faith in you or that we believe that your word is absolute truth, there's, there are millions of people who will stand up against us and accuse us of being foolish, shallow, and empty. God, I pray that none of us would ever believe it for a second. Help us, Father, to understand that our faith is built on absolute truth. And nothing, nothing can ever shake that. It's not because we want it to be or because somebody told us, but because we have studied it, we have researched it, we have found that there's overwhelming evidence that any reasonable person would believe it. Father, may we be that people. and May we stand strong in what we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.